Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Get More Students podcast. I'm your co-host, Alex Asher, CEO of LearnCube, and we are going to be talking with Matthew Radich today. Now, what I really wanted to get at, to the heart of was really understanding an entrepreneurial story, particularly someone who's created a fantastic and very successful online language school. Now, Matthew is the founder and CEO of The English Farm. It is an online language school that provides one-to-one on, one -one lessons and actually started out of Japan. Matthew, it's so great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alex. And I actually think that's probably a great place to start is the beginning. <laughs> How did you start the, the English farm? You say we started in Japan and we did, but I lived in Brazil at the time. I'd lived and worked in Japan for a number of years and then moved to Brazil in 2011 and was working for another company teaching online. And that was when I decided to, to start my own gig. And so I spent a lot of spare time building the first kind of iteration of the website in my spare time between lessons and raising small children. And then we landed our first major client in Japan while I was still in Brazil in 2016. Um, okay, so let's go back a bit. So hmm. your your first client was in Japan, but you're in Brazil. So again, yeah. talk me through how that kind of worked, and particularly because this was your first, it was a private client at that time, wasn't it? No, it's a, it's a big multinational consulting firm. Got it. So... We're particularly proud of that as our kind of beginnings because I think that we launched in what's generally thought to be one of the hardest markets in the world with one of the most prestigious firms in the world. Confidentiality is something that we keep or treat very, very seriously. So, so we don't talk about who our clients are. But yeah, I've had a, I've had a really long relationship with Japan, the first time I went there was 1991 on a, on, a, on a music tour in an orchestra that I was in, but ended up studying and working and living there for a total of seven or eight years. And then when I moved to Brazil, my wife is Brazilian. When I moved, we moved there in 2011. And I, I was, I, 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 had, I had started another company that was so, kind of like a side hustle gig thing when I was teaching in Tokyo. I was working on that, but it wasn't it wasn't really enough to to support me and 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 a family. So I looked for some other work, and to cut a long story short, ended up teaching people that worked at this firm in Tokyo, and thought that I could do a better job than the provider that they were using. So I essentially just built a company to 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 service that business. Quit my job, pitched at that firm. And then about six months later, I think roughly won, won that account. And so I had at that stage probably half a dozen teachers working with me, but I was doing the majority of the work. So I was running the company, doing most of the lessons, writing all the content, coding the website, doing all those sorts of things. Fairly busy time. Yeah. So, so, so that's kind of the genesis of it is that, and again, what was the itch that made you go, that feel that? confidence to leave a job was it the fact that you got the the deal and that sort of fell 
kind of squarely into place and, and that kind of gave you that security or was there something? Oh, no, <laughs> there was no security. I mean, we were down to vapors in our bank account by the time they signed. Fortunately, my wife has always been a very supportive person. But when I look back on it, it was basically madness. We had we had no money left when we landed that business. And there was no there was no there was no guarantee that it was going to happen. But I mean, I guess I've always I've always been entrepreneurial. I've always known that I didn't want to work in I, when you look at my university education and what other people around me were doing, I was kind of destined for some sort of corporate job and consulting or banking or policy or something like that, but didn't really want to do that. I wanted to do something on my own and I wanted to do it my way. And to a certain extent, the itch that I scratched was my own selfishness. I didn't want to have to, you know, I wanted to work in the way that I wanted to work and I wanted to work with the people and for the people that I wanted to work with and for. And I was, as a teacher, constantly frustrated by the circumstances under which I was employed because I was made to do particular things by their policies and rules that I didn't think made any sense and kind of hampered my ability to do my job to the best of my ability. I don't know if that makes sense. So I just decided to kind of go out and do it on my own and then kind of folded into that is you know broadly speaking as i said an interest in entrepreneurship and business but also the web and technology and 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 how that can be used in an or better used in an educational context and so, how many years have you been going for now with the english fund i started building it in probably about 2014 and it was a very long arduous process so I might have only had five or ten minutes between classes or waiting for a student to show up that I could do a thing and then probably somewhere around 2015 I had I had when I when I, I've been teaching online since 2009 or 10 when I lived in Tokyo, I had private students that I used to trek all around Tokyo to kind of meet them. And, and, and I managed to persuade a few of them that we should be doing stuff online. And, and mm -hmm. so that was when I started doing that with privates. And they were using were Skype or something. Yeah, yeah. So I was doing it on Skype with 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 just Word Docs and, 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 yeah. and Google Calendar and, and kind of cobbling that together. And that was kind of the genesis of the English farm was Skype. Google Docs and, and and Google Calendar. And so gradually I built bits to replace those pieces of functionality or I used SaaS products to manage bookings or whatever. And then when I when I was in Brazil, I continued teaching those private students that I had from Japan because, you know, as you know, you develop a really good long... I mean, some of the students that we have on the English farm currently are students that I first taught in 2005 or six in Japan. And it's, yeah, it's encouraging that they've stuck with, but they stuck with me through that process of building up the English farm, but then they've stayed with the company because it's kind of like an extension of, of me, I suppose, in terms of the quality it delivers and style of teaching that we do. 
And how did you find in those first years, you know, acknowledging that you started in 2014, mm. was mm. that, have you found the ride very much a zigzag? Did you find like had a big up and then a bit of a, a kind of grind? Like what's that, what's that look like for you? Oh, it's, a, it's a grind. It's a real grind. Yeah. And I was talking to a friend of mine as a, as a founder of a, a tech startup here and i was talking to him a couple of nights ago over beers and he was saying that you know that as a founder you can you have to be unequivocal in your conviction that it's going to succeed that there's no other option and he's he's cut from the same cloth as me couldn't possibly fathom working in a corporate job and you have to be the sort of person that just kind of bloody mindedly and you you'll, you'll you'll understand this as well alex you just kind of have to press on no matter what the world throws at you if it's a if it's a pandemic or i mean the, the current macroeconomic conditions that we're experiencing now are really tough but you know the, things personally have been much worse for me and and being able to navigate that it's not necessarily something that i would recommend for everyone um, but if you are that kind of person and you can stomach the risk and you can stomach the so many people will, will will not believe in what you're doing if you can kind of put up with that sort of lack of faith or criticism or whatever however you want to frame it then it's incredibly rewarding i'm i'm really genuinely moved by the sorts of people that I get to work with now that that have kind of accumulated around this thing, the English farm. We've got a really good team. And 95% of them, I've probably more, I've never met in real life, but we've got a really strong culture, a really strong bond. As our workforce is completely distributed, we only ever meet online. There are only, I'm here in New Zealand, and in this city there are only four other people that that work for the company and then there's another 120 plus around the world amazing so yeah it's still a fairly you know it's a it's a pretty sizable business there and out of, out of curiosity mm. you know we were kind of talking about what how's that trajectory found you know been like for you and it does mm. sound like it, it's kind of like required a lot of hard graft and things yeah. have sort of grown uh, let's call it like with that sort of with that grind but have there been any like big highs and if so what oh, yeah, part of the journey have they been in was it like um, at the very start was there some no they happen all the time yeah i think that's the thing about milestones right like yeah. you and i think that's what keeps you going is because you kind of set a goal and you get there and then you're like yes yes we've done it <laughs> and that's what that's the fuel that keeps me i mean i'm not in it for the money <laughs> you, because i don't think anybody's in teaching for money if i was that kind of person i would have followed followed what what other people and gone into consulting and banking and that kind of thing and i and i'd i'd be all right but that's not a particularly well i didn't see that as being a particularly rewarding experience whereas when you as a teacher when your student comes in to your class and says, I've been able to do this thing that I've as aspired to. And part of my ability to do that was a con contribution that these language classes have, you know, or even beyond just the language skills, the, the, the relationships that you develop with these people. And in the same way, I think in, 
and that, and that kind of inspires you and motivates you to continue to teach and to continue to, to do the things that you do as an educator. And it's similar in business. If you can see that by, I think the winds are always there, put it that way. And it just depends on how you choose to think about things. For what, one of the things for me personally is when somebody I've been working with for a long time goes off because they're going into the next stage of their career. We, I mean, we, we, we hire lots of people who are students and then they go off and they kind of land a job in, in their chosen field. And that's a win. That's motivating because we've facilitated them doing that in some sense. I mean, I would, I would, I would have killed to be able to do this as a job part time when I was at university, but I had to make coffee or whatever. But landing big clients is always a good thing because that means that you can take business to the next level, and you could that, which for me means being able to do more stuff in cool ways and in more places. So we're getting traction in different markets around the world now. But again, that's a, it's a what we do is predominantly. B to C, and that's a long sales cycle. So that's a different kind of graft in itself. Do you mean, yeah, and B to B, do you mean? Sorry. No, sorry, B to B, yeah, no, not, yeah. not B to C. Yeah. It's about 10 to 15% of our business is B to C, but most of it is B to B. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, there must be some huge satisfaction out of getting those. Yeah, those big deals. And, mm -hmm. and even by the size of your teachers, were there some kind of big wins about, you know, looking back like, oh, wow, look, we've got this team of, yeah, over a hundred people working with us. That that certainly would we've give got, some yeah. satisfaction. We've got everybody's extremely capable, and so we're kind of in a we're in a we're in a good position that we've built up a good re reputation amongst the teachers that we have, and the, they're, they're excellent teachers, and they all know excellent teachers. So we've got, I mean, if anything, we don't have enough students to support the number of excellent teachers that would like to be working for us, and that's a frustration. So managing in the sense of kind of balancing supply and demand and all these other things that you do when you're in business is difficult. But yeah, I, I think another thing that was, was really satisfying is that when we, when we landed our largest account, being able to scale up rapidly to service that business was, was gratifying in the sense that you, you know, like you're standing at the bottom of the mountain looking kind of thinking how, geez, how, how are we going to do this? How are we going to, get past this but you do and in, in the process you learn a whole lot of stuff and you then know okay next now now we know we can do this that your ambition increases because you don't feel as intimidated by new challenges mm -hmm. and I think that's a rewarding thing as well. Like I, I don't like standing still or feeling like I'm standing still. And I think that that was one of the other kind of itches that I needed to scratch because when you've been, I, I taught myself for 15 or so years. And by the end of it, particularly if you're dealing with people who have, who have similar or the same kind of L1. And, and in my case, that was most, the vast majority of my students have been, Japanese and I'm a Japanese speaker as well that you 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 get to the point where putting aside the individual personalities of the students and those sorts of stories the actual mechanics of the job becomes quite repetitive and you feel 
like you're not necessarily because you know somebody will make a mistake and it's like there's another one of those i'm going to go through this kind of script that i have for dealing with this thing and i've got certain certain set of strategies that i use to deal and i think that that makes you feel like you're standing a little bit still and so in order to kind of introduce some variety you need to be learning and you need to be developing and you need to be trying new new and different things and that's not to say that there aren't mechanisms for doing that in teaching i kind of acknowledge that there are lots of ways that i could have pursued that but it wasn't it wasn't where my motivation lay put it that Got way. It. and you cho- chose a niche possibly well at least you know that that was a big part of your story initially yeah partly from it sounds like the initial big customer having you know and finding that you were able to succeed very successfully with that particular Mm. customer. What were the initial benefits of having chosen a niche? And then maybe we could talk about the challenges on that. Yeah, I mean, like I said before, the English farm is just kind of an extension of what I did as a teacher. And that was, as a teacher, I used to focus on the hard students, particularly at the school where I used to work. I got known to be the guy that, would be recommended if somebody was a particularly driving student or they had a very specific kind of technical need. And I think that when you look at large organizations, it's like anything, like if you, if you, like a, 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 the fa- te- textbooks are good in that they give structure, but they fail in that they're kind of averaged out. And so they're not ideal for anybody. And it's kind of the job of the teacher to make it specific. I think that large language schools are often like that in the sense that they kind of try to be all things to all people and then they end up not being ideal or any and it's a bit of a roll of the dice for a student as to whether or not they're going to get what that so what became really clear to me was that rather than producing this kind of almost like large-scale manufacturing you know like you kind of produce these average things it was much better to 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 tailor stuff genuinely and that but that's not very easy like you need capable people to be able to do that and so I, I I was aware that there was this requirement, especially with this first client and the, the kinds of clients that we specialize with in professional services. So these are people who are operating at a really high level or, or um, high value employees. And it's hard work as a teacher because you have to always be on, but it's also very rewarding and it's making you think. And so we kind of look for people like that. So the niche, I guess, that we focus on is is the is is the harder one um and then superficially also there's a test that gets used in japan and when i started teaching in this particular this particular niche and specializing in this niche which was 2011 2012 this this test was becoming popular but there was no material on it there was nothing on the internet and and so i just went out and learned as much as i could about it and so we, one of the one of the, the the best things that we did for gaining traction in that market was was focusing on that one specific test. And a lot of people have kind of followed suit, but we're still we still rank in that market. We still rank number number. We we even beat the people that deliver the test in in, in search rankings because we're the only ones that actually, for the longest time, have addressed that as a as a as a niche. And so. 
we kind of look for non-obvious niches, right? And so we go for kind of you know, quality over quantity, I guess. Yeah. And just on that, so does that test relate then with the professional services niche or are they two separate things? Absolutely. No, yeah. it's one. It's an interesting test. And it came out of it came out of a, a language standard that they used in the United States for all the three letter agencies to evaluate language skills and in, in, in the people working in those agencies. And it got taken to the Japanese market and retooled as a kind of a business English test. But one of the reasons that I quite like any, I mean, because the other, I mean, un, under all of this, there are like problems with standardized tests that I don't want to kind of even touch. But one of the reasons that I like this test is it's way broader in terms of the things that it evaluates. And it's been around for a dozen years. And it makes students think about communication and language beyond just vocabulary and grammar and words and phrases they have to think about body language and being persuasive and all these sorts of things that really matter when you're operating at that level in in business be it consulting or medicine or farm pharmaceuticals whatever so it, it, they, they really went hand in hand and the sorts of students that we like to deal with are the kinds of people who are very very capable capable very dedicated and also hardworking. And as a teacher, that's exactly the kind of student that you want. And and I think I think there's nothing worse when you're a teacher when you're 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 dealing with students that aren't motivated, are kind of forced to be there, don't have an interest. It's kind of like getting blood from a stone. But the 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 the, the we've got this quite good synchronization between the motivations and the interests of the teachers and the motivation and interests of the students and then the work ethic of both of those groups kind of fit together really well. And that test is targeted at exactly those kinds of people. Just what you said there, I was kind of curious how that kind of taps into the, the you know, the Japanese culture, whether that be in business or whether that mm -hmm. be in students. Are there any insights? Let's start off with actually maybe an, an easier one in a way. What, do you have any insights into Japanese students and what, particularly online teaching with Japanese students, um, you know, what you've found is particularly helpful or, yeah, or at least unique about working with that, that group of learners? I'm never very comfortable with making kind of broad generalizations about any group. And I also think that obviously culture is an important thing, though. So there are some things that you can say about some Japanese people. The people that we deal with tend to be very worldly. They've gone to the best universities. They have an understanding of the world. But then when I think back about the people that I used to teach when I lived in Japan, you would get you'd have more interactions with people who are kind of stereotypically Japanese. And what I mean by that is that I mean, a very simple example of that is if you know something about Japanese culture, they have this vertical hierarchy and how you relate to another party is informed by whoever is, 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 is like it literally translates to above the eyes and below the eyes. So who's, who's superior and who's inferior to you in some way. And so that can be who's older, who's younger, 
it could be who who did it before and who's coming second or, or whatever. But but in the classroom, it becomes teacher student, regardless of 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 all of the other things. And I had an experience with a student who in Japan, and he was the CEO of a very large company. And on the weekends, he would come and he take lessons with me. And in the class, and so he was an international dude. He knew he. Been around the block more than a few times. He's probably in his mid sixties, and he was a really chilled out, laid back guy. But in the class, I was his teacher, and so he was always super respectful. But I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a Kiwi. We're pretty laid back, and we kind of like to think that we're at least vaguely egalitarian. And so we we're on first name terms, and all these sorts of things. And he would come into the school. All the Japanese staff would be kind of bowing and referring to him and, and speaking to him in very, very kind of honorific forms of language and i'd see them and say hey kiyoshi how you going and they were horrified because they didn't understand firstly that in his mind i was his teacher and therefore their social relationship with him had been inverted and then secondly he had traveled the world and he knew how to deal with people of different cultures and so i think that that kind of example illustrates the classical japanese way of thinking things and the way the japanese start treating japanese people but then also the way that you end up dealing with people who 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 understand more broadly how other people work and they're prepared to kind of meet you in the middle and i was always having experiences like that in japan you know i'd introduce myself and i would in Japanese with my name in the Japanese order, so surname first, and then they would say, oh, you're, you're a foreigner, therefore your surname is your first name, because I know that English speakers... So I think, ultimately, there are things that come up, but, I mean, we, we and, and, and the culture of our organisation is, you know, you just teach the person who is in front of you, and you respond to them, and you'll get somebody who behaves in a quote-unquote Japanese way, whether they're Japanese or not, and then somebody who is, you know, stereotypically of another culture might be brash and outspoken or whatever, but that, you know, and so, and I think that, that I think the real key as a teacher is to adapt to that. Interestingly, you, you know, you've obviously had to, you know, build a team around mm -hmm. this as well. Mm -hmm. How have you found, you know, building a team? It sounds like it's a very international team. Yep. Would, would I be right then? You, that you know, the actual cultural aspects is not something you've really had to train your your teachers on. It's more, you know, it might be similar for for many online language schools and and what you would train your 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 teachers on. Like, how have you kind of approached um, that aspect? Yeah, we do a lot of training. We do a lot of vetting of our teachers. We do quite a detailed applications and interview process, and that turns people off, which is a good way of selecting out the kinds of people that we don't want to work with because they can't be bothered going through the applications process. And as soon as somebody can't be bothered applying for a job, then, you know. And so one of the things that we avoid, part of our culture is the people who get it, get it, and everybody else can go away. Like the people that understand how we work and why we work in the way that we work, be they students or teachers or clients, will stick around. And the other people who, who, whose values don't align and whose work ethic doesn't align and who don't see that learning a language, I think, is one of the hardest things that you can do, particularly if you want to take it to fluency. And the people who don't get that that's a long, it's a lifelong endeavor, then there are plenty of solutions for them out there. They can go and plug away at Joe Lingo for a couple of months and then, and then and fine.
but we're really looking for the sorts of people who we want to go on that journey with them we want to adapt with them and this is what i mean you teach to the person in front of you so our, our training process includes an element of cultural training and i do that personally with every single teacher that we employ but it's not it's not how do Japanese people behave in the classroom or what should you do when, how should you approach a Brazilian? It's more, what is the culture of our organization? What are the expectations? And most of that is about undoing the expectations or the, the work habits that people have formed over time and working for our competitors and other people in the space. We give our teachers a massive amount of trust and autonomy because we only hire people that are extremely capable. And so it's really interesting because people people will say people are hard and I don't think that they are. I think that you just have to be really discerning in who you choose to work with and how you work with them. And as soon as you, I think it's very easy to screw it up. And I think that that was another thing, like I, referred to earlier that drove me to do this was I just wanted to create a good place for good people to do, do good work and anybody who understands what that means fits right in but people who don't struggle like I said it's often often it's because they've been conditioned to think certain ways about things like missing classes I think one of the things that generally speaking in work culture not just in our industry but across the board happen is that you kind of when when people miss work or actually take a step back i think that the mistake that a lot of employers make is in legislating to the lowest common denominator and making the assumption that the people who are working in your business or working in your company are the, are the worst so if they're going to miss work, it's because they're lazy or good for nothing. So they better have a good excuse. And one of the things that people are quite relieved or shocked or can't get used to here is I, I don't care. I mean, I care if you miss a, a class, but it's none of my, the reasoning is none of my, it's none of my business. Because I know that if you're working with us, that you treat the job seriously and that you'll be missing a class for a really good reason and I hope you're okay and I hope everything's all right and do you need help or support and can we contact your students for you and that so as, as an example the way that you treat people I think that that kind of cultural aspect of work I think becomes really really important it's one of the reasons why I think we've got incredibly low churn in our teaching staff I think nobody's left this year that I can recall and the last time somebody left the business was in September to, for a career change, you know, and that's really important for us in delivering a consistent, reliable, high quality service to our students and our clients when that's, that's the secret sauce. So it sounds like teaching is one part of your secret sauce, but you've also you know, gone through the effort of trying to build, you know, your own platform and your own solutions over many years how's that experience been for you it's been on the whole fantastic and frustrating because it's great to create and build a thing but it never goes how you think it might or how you <laughs> think it should i think the problem is especially when you're 
when you're when you when you create a thing, you, you can see the potential that it has, but what it could do and what it is doing is never the same. And even though when I think about what we are doing now, is that we should or we could from a few years back. And so, like I said, you reach a point, but I'm always thinking beyond that. So it is, and I think that if you, if you, if you're, it depends what your motivations are, I guess. But I think for me, if you're constantly trying to evolve and do stuff better and do stuff differently and do stuff in an interesting way, keep people engaged and kind of make sure that everybody's thriving and getting the most out of the least and all of these sorts of things. I think that if you're not frustrated, then you're probably not the right, you probably haven't got the right mindset to be driving the thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think we definitely have heard from others, you know, or even our own experience, you know, things take you know, often twice as long and is yeah. twice as expensive as you, as you yeah. kind of initially think. I don't know if that's been your experience as well, Matthew. Yeah. I mean, we're always trying to, we're trying to do too much with not enough. That's our perpetual problem. Yeah. And that's that's what I have to, that, I mean, my job is to make sure yeah. that that's still viable. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. like there's viability and not pushing it too far, like turning everything back into the business, all your yeah. energy, all your time, all your money, so that you can, can, but just ultimately just do cool shit. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's what I like to do, do cool stuff, make sure that, it's interesting for the people who are involved. You don't want anybody to get stale on it. Yeah. And yeah. So you kind of need to have the resources to be able to last the distance, yeah. I guess, as well. And, and sort of be able to continue to innovate. I mean, it takes a long time just to get out of the basics, to get out into more of those sort of interesting aspects of either mm. building a platform or a classroom or that kind of thing. Yeah. Did you end up raising investment? To, and was that like a part of that, which was the, the raise to kind of help fund we, some of that or was that yeah more so we the, the growth of the business it's all it's the majority of what we've done is being bootstrapping we did take on a bit of debt a couple sure. of years ago to do the next kind of big chunk of work that we needed to support this kind of big phase of growth that we went through yeah. and i am currently going through the process of talking to people about raising sure and we can see that we're there are there are opportunities for the style of business that we are, but then there is also you know a cost of entry to certain markets, or there's a there's a, a certain level. I mean, I kind of thinking about it, I could have had a very comfortable life if I just kind of continued as I was a couple of years ago, but it wouldn't have been. Wouldn't have been as rewarding from what it would have been like. as rewarding or satisfying, I think. Yeah. And I think that, that that's the kind of paradox is is but it's it's the same thing going back to learning a language, right? I started learning Japanese in 1990, and it's not it's something that I will never finish. Um and it's not it's not growth for growth's sake, but it's just that there is always, you know, it's like I, I often would kind of say to my students that that learning English or learning a language is like being on a boat and trying to get to the horizon. Sure. Like you just never get there. And I kind of feel it's the same with what we're doing. I mean, I don't know what the end point is. And I think if there is an end point, again, like if you've got an end 
game in mind. I don't actually kind of question the yeah. motivations for doing it in the first place. Maybe um, I'll, I might reorient this question just as one of the last questions before we finish up today. Sure. Is, you know, maybe where do you want to take the English farm next? If it's, you know, there won't be an end necessarily, but where's that next milestone or that next part of the vision? I think that what we want to do is ambitious. I can see that the market is changing, and I think that we're in a good position to adapt to those changes. One of the things that we're doing at the moment is we're bringing our model to New Zealand, not in the English market, but in Te Reo Māori, which is is an official language here, and there's been a real resurgence. And and and, but I think though lots of language markets around the world are maturing. And I think that people are starting to recognize that you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. And that if you're serious about it, then you have to invest. And I think we're in a good position for that. So we see that there are opportunities around the place and in, in various niches that we would like to explore. And we've been doing that for the last couple of years. We've been looking around the world and, and seeing you know, who's what's happening here in Europe and what's happening over here and 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 who's 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 there, what are they doing, and how can we now our, our 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 position strategically has always been to complement, not to replace other forms of learning, because it's naive to think that there is a our way of doing it. And that's something that I think that people are starting to realize as well, is that you can't just offer one approach. And as a student, you can't just learn using one approach. You have to use a suite of different things. I think physical training is a good analogy, right? Like if you only do the same thing, then you get good at doing that one thing. You need to cross train. You need to, to supplement whatever it is that you're doing to become better at the thing that you're you know, trying to be good at. Yeah, and that might be so, a good question to ask. Then, as a a final question, is you know, what piece <laughs> of advice would you have for someone either running their own online language school and, and kind of looking towards the future? Is there anything there that kind of you'd like to share? Well, that's a good question. I hadn't thought about that. I think that what I would say to a person depends on who they are and what they're trying to do. I think that generally, I'm going to make a generalization now, generally people look for simple solutions to what are often complex problems and complex problems require complex solutions. And so that's why I don't think it really benefits people to kind of throw out let me change the question then. What would you change what would you say to your yourself starting out then? You know, what would you say to that that earlier Matthew? I just keep going. Yeah. I think. I think that's the thing. But that was what I said to myself then. <laughs> and it's easy to, you know, it's easy to say from from this point in time, like, well, yeah. that turned out to be right. But I think also you can't underestimate timing and luck. So much of this is just timing and luck. Yeah. And the the fact that I ended up in Brazil teaching who I was teaching that led to me winning that account was blind luck. Because I signed up, I mentioned before that I had another I had another kind of side side hustle, and that was that's online learning. It's still going, but it's still very much a side hustle. It's a little kind of service that we offer the students. And when I was looking at the online education space, I, I signed up to a whole bunch of different platforms to see what they were doing. And one of the ones that I signed up for three years later 
sent me a message and said, you're the only teacher on our platform that speaks Japanese and we've got this Japanese client. Do you want to speak, teach some Japanese students? Yeah. I was like, yeah. And that was exactly when I needed work. And, then, you know, like you could say that that was all just this chain yeah. of events that led to where I am today. I think so. Yeah, I, I think guess that people... Yeah, I guess maybe if I was to maybe take some of your words as to as a way of finishing up, one yeah. might say, you know, you've just got to stick with it. And the longer you're in it, the more luck will find you in a way. Because yeah, as you say, like timing and luck has a, a, a place in that experience. But yeah, if, you, if you're not in it, you know, if you're not in to win, then you, you kind of get run out of options. So I think I think my point is, is that if something doesn't happen, it could be because you're bad at it, but it could also just be that you've been unlucky and the timing has been bad. Yeah. So press on. Okay. <laughs> I think what a, your, you know? <laughs> uh, what a great way to finish then. Matthew, mm. thank you so much for lending me your time today. Where can people find more about you, Matthew? Yeah, thanks for the yarn, and Alex. And the English Farm, I might say. Yeah, well, I mean, we're at theenglishfarm.com. And yeah, people want to hit me up. I'm Matthew at theenglishfarm.com. And I'm on LinkedIn. I don't know that there are many people with my name around. But... <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And no if, worries. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about LearnCube and you're listening in, um, you can find more at www.learncube.com and you can learn more about our virtual classroom and online school software. Thank you so much for listening in and please hit that subscribe button and we'll see you here next time. Thanks again.